Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 23. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we believe, Lord, that your word is, is true. We believe that, that you have given power over death, God, we believe that by Christ's resurrection from the dead, that you have given life to our mortal bodies as well. And so, Lord, for our time together today, as we step out of the world, a world full of sin and darkness and decay and death, we pray, God, that you would remind us of the power of your resurrection, not only for our future, Lord, but the power of the resurrection, the power of the spirit of God that dwells in us today to breathe life into our lives today, to live for your glory today and for the legacy that you have invited us into. And so God, I pray that you would communicate your word to us by your spirit. Lead us in this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Benjamin Franklin said that nothing in life is certain except for Death and taxes. As hard as we try to prevent it, as, as much as we fight to stave death off, the fact of the matter is everybody dies. How's that in, for an introduction for a sermon? Everybody dies. Moving on. Death is, is the one that looms over all of us. It shadows all of life. And yet we try to ignore it as long as possible. It's the one thing we don't like to think about. We don't like to talk about. We all have it in common. And yet it never comes up. And because of the advancements in medicine and technology, we don't have to talk about it as often as previous generations and civilizations because we don't encounter it as often as before. So many things that were a death sentence years ago are barely a blip on the radar. In my 10-year-old son's lifetime, he has had two staph infections. That would have killed him twice in previous generations, just a couple hundred years ago. And now it's barely a blip on the radar. But it's not only because of modern medicine that prevents us from having to face the reality of death, because even when death happens, it's hidden. We don't see it. Death very rarely happens in the home anymore. 
It takes place in, in confined places, in hospitals, in nursing homes, where trained professionals minimize the unsightliness of death with morphine and mortuaries. But the hiddenness of death doesn't eliminate it from our world. It just eliminates it from our daily reality. And all that does is hinder our ability to cope with its certainty. We're so allergic to death because we don't encounter it as often as previous generations have. It's actually reduced our ability to grieve loss or to come to grips with our own mortality. Death may be a part of life, but it doesn't stop us from doing everything we possibly can to prevent it or ignore it. And so there's many people today who live like they're never going to die. Or, or, they, or they, they're striving to find some form of, of immortality, some secret to make them live longer or live forever. Some combination of science and medicine and technology, some, you know, little apple cider vinegar, little turmeric, some vitamin D, equal parts yoga and CrossFit, and then no one's ever going to die ever again. People are working to figure out how to upload human consciousness to robots so that you can just live out the rest of your days as a machine. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, I believe it was published in 1946. It's the third installment of his space trilogy called That Hideous Strength, where he was already talking about this. This is the way humanity is going, that we are going to dehumanize human beings to such a capacity that we're going to walk around as machines. And people are working to accomplish this. All of this demonstrates the truth of what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that God has put eternity into our hearts. The reason we strive for immortality, the reason that we, we can't possibly comprehend our lives coming to an end is because we were made for eternity. We were made not only with the desire to live forever, we were made to live forever. You were made to live eternally. When human beings were created, we were intended to live in God's presence forever. So the most painful part of death is the truth that it wasn't meant to be. Death was never meant to be. And so throughout the history of human civilization, people have always pursued some form of eternity. Sometimes this pursuit of eternity comes in the belief of life after death, whether heaven or nirvana or Valhalla or reincarnation, whatever it is, the desire for life after death is one of the ways humanity pushes against the offense of mortality. But many people today and throughout history, have seen these ideas as an antiquated myth. It's just old-fashioned. They see it as something that uneducated, unenlightened people needed because they just didn't know any better. But this isn't true. See, we love to think that our generation, 
whatever generation that may be, we are so much better, so much smarter than any generation that came before. They all believed in these myths, but I refuse to believe in these myths because I have science, I have technology, I have all of these things. But then every generation also believes that they're better than the generation that came after them. We have a lot of youth every Sunday that sit on this side of the sanctuary. There's previous generations are going to think they're better than you. You're going to think you're better than them. And the generation that comes after you, you're going to think you're better than them also. But we're not any different. We're not any different. Even in Jesus' day, in the first century, back before science and technology, there were groups of people that still rejected the idea of an afterlife. One of those groups was called the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. This is why they were sad, you see. It is biblically mandated. You have to crack that joke when you say that, when you talk about the Sadducees. I apologize, but it's in my job description. If the Herodians from last week were the primary political rivals to the Pharisees, the Sadducees are the primary religious rivals to the Pharisees. Both of these groups were Jewish, but they disagreed about a lot of things. Specifically, they disagreed about which writings should be considered scripture. The Pharisees believed that all of the books in what we call our Old Testament, what they just called the Bible, all of the books were to be regarded as scripture. But the Sadducees argued that only the first five books, the book of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, should be trusted as scripture. I would like to think that if our Bible was just five books, we would read it more often. But then I remember that most people fall off in Leviticus anyway and wouldn't even get through Deuteronomy. And so I guess we're in the same situation. So having different ideas of what books were treated as scripture caused a big division between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And in our text, the division is specifically regarding the belief in the resurrection from the dead at the end of the age, because most of the explicit passages regarding resurrection come from the passages outside of Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so some Sadducees come to Jesus with a riddle. It's, it's, believed to be a well-known riddle that the Sadducees often used in their debates with the Pharisees. This riddle was their trump card. This riddle was the one that no one could answer. And so they come to Jesus with it, not just to try to stump him, but to mock him, to, to poke fun at the belief in the resurrection. Now, in order to understand the purpose behind the riddle, we first need to understand what in the world this riddle is talking about. Because this is incredibly foreign to our context. This, this riddle is rooted in an obscure law from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 6. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may, ne may not be blotted out of Israel. Now you might be asking yourself, they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Okay, 
but they believe this kind of family dynamic is all right? Like what is going on with the Sadducees? This, this passage describes something that's historically called Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage, it, Leverite is just, it's, it's Latin for brother-in-law. It's brother-in-law marriage. And it's been practiced by many cultures throughout the history of the world, not just the Jewish culture. And while this is a foreign concept for us, the intention behind this practice is really beautiful. It's really, really beautiful and powerful. First, it ensures the continuation of a family name. It ensures a, a legacy. At the end of someone's life, all that they have is their, their name and, and, their, and the memory of them. Is all that remains. And so the child born to a Leverite marriage would legally belong to the deceased brother to continue on his name, to continue on that person's legacy. But more than name, Leverite, Leverite marriage ensures the continued possession of the family land. See, a widowed wife did not automatically inherit her dead husband's property. And so only a child could be an heir. And so without children, the future of the land was uncertain. And if the future of the land was uncertain, then the provision for the widowed spouse was uncertain. And so Leverite marriage then ensures provision for the woman whose husband passed away. Without a husband or without land or children to work the land, many widowed women, in order to provide for themselves, were forced to sell themselves into slavery or worse. And so Leverite marriage is an opportunity to come alongside, a, a not just a grieving widow, but to come alongside her and provide a future for her, provide life for her. The most beautiful example of how this plays out among God's people is in the story of Ruth. Ruth's husband and her father-in-law were dead, and so she and her mother-in-law, Naomi, were destitute. But Boaz was a kinsman. Boaz was a near relative, and he redeemed them from their hopeless future by marrying Ruth and producing a son for her deceased husband to give them the, the rights to, to land, to an inheritance, to a legacy. And ultimately, this child was Obed, who would be the father of Jesse, who would be the father of King David. This, this Leverite marriage works its way out beautifully in the life of God's people. But the Sadducees take this concept and they use this concept outlined in the books of Moses to undermine the concept of resurrection. They rejected a future resurrection life because they continued to pursue, pursue a future life through legacy. This, this Leverite marriage and what the, the Sadducees are coming to Jesus with is, is the fact that they only believe that immortality could be pursued through having children, through, through a legacy. When the Sadducees reference Leverite marriage saying that the brother must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother, that word translated raise up comes from the same word that we get the word resurrection. And so the Sadducees believe the only resurrection that should be anticipated, the only future life after we die that should be expected is children. 
And so God had given them a way to ensure legacy. And they believed that this command of Moses invalidated resurrection because to them it made the implications of resurrection absurd. In light of God's command, if there was someone who married a husband who died with no children and then married his brother who died with no children and then married another one who died with no children and then married another, all seven of them married her and died with no children and she died. If the resurrection is true, then how about Christmas in that family? It's going to be absurd. It's going to be ridiculous. And so if the implications of an idea are absurd, logically we can throw away the validity of that belief. And so this is where the Sadducees drop the mic. This is their mic drop riddle. It's checkmate, Jesus. No one has ever been able to answer this. You're not going to be able to answer it either. And so according to the Sadducees, the only future we can hope for is the one carried on by our children and grandchildren after we die. And so the Sadducees believe they've got the They've got the logistical or the logical and scientific high ground. These are the intellectuals in our world who would deny that there's anything after death. But much like many people today, the Sadducees believed that the concept of life after death was a crutch. Maybe you've heard this word. Maybe you've used this word. Maybe you have friends or family in your life who say this, who say, I don't need faith. I don't need Jesus. I don't need eternal life. I don't need a crutch. It was a couple of years ago when I needed a crutch, okay? I fell out of a tree. True story. Um, why was I in that tree? Uh, the same reason any grown man would climb a tree. I climbed the tree to prove that I could climb a tree. Uh, and I climbed that tree. It was not an easy tree to climb. I had to use significant technique and strength to climb that tree. And I am happy uh, to, to tell you today that, that I can, in fact, climb a tree. I can't get out of a tree. <laughs> I, it's getting out of the tree where I ran into issues. And so I'm sitting on this branch and I'm like, I can get out. My wife is like, why did you climb that tree? You're going to hurt yourself. I'm not going to hurt myself. It's fine. And, and, I, and I went and I, I grabbed a branch and I, and I kind of swung myself over and I slipped. And I grabbed the trunk of the tree and I slid down like Yogi Bear style. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, I am, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Like I'm going to rest gingerly on the ground. And I came down very gently on the ground and my foot landed on a root and buckled my ankle. And I was in excruciating pain. I should have immediately iced it and elevated it and like gotten crutches. But instead I went ice skating to prove that I still could. And so I laced that skate up as tight as I could to give myself as much support as I possibly could. And I did irreparable damage to my ankle. Uh, to this day, I can't run. 
My, the mobility in my right ankle is just shot. I needed crutches. I needed to keep the weight off of my ankle. I needed to keep the weight off so that it could heal. And instead, I tried to pretend like I was going to be okay. I tried to muscle through it. I tried to prove that I was strong enough on my own. And the damage only became worse. See, a crutch isn't something that caters to laziness. A crutch doesn't keep us in our weakness. A crutch doesn't comfort us so that we can get along with life continuing to be incapable of reality. A crutch supports us, helps us to take the weight off for a moment so that our brokenness can heal. It doesn't allow us to remain weak. A crutch acknowledges the severity of the situation. It acknowledges the pain of the brokenness and comes alongside to support us so that we can heal. Faith and the belief in a resurrection is not a crutch to keep us in our weakness. It acknowledges our brokenness. It looks at death fully in the face and it provides grace and power so that we can heal so that we can heal, so that we can become whole, so that we can become what God intended us, intended for us to be. We don't need something to cater to our weakness, but we do need healing from brokenness. We do need power to overcome the hostility of death. And the primary way that we do that in our enlightened and intellectual world today is by settling for legacy, by raising up children, through our accomplishments and our achievements that will live on after we die, but leaving by leaving the world just a little bit better than we found it. Remember when that was even possible to think that? That we might be able to leave the world better than we found it? Legacy is the best we can do in a world where death is undefeated. The best we can do is legacy, but that's not the world of Scripture. The Bible tells a story about a world where death has been defeated. The Bible tells the story of a world that looks pain and death fully in the face and yet validates our pursuit of immortality and all of it is because of the promise of the resurrection. The Bible tells a story about how God gives life, to, uh, how God gives his people power over death. Jesus says the reason the Sadducees don't know this is because they don't know the scriptures. Now, part of this could mean that they don't know all of the scriptures, right? They only had the first five books. And so Jesus could be saying the reason that you're wrong is because you don't have all of the scriptures. And that might be true, but I think there's more to it. See, by quoting Exodus 3, a passage from the book of Moses... Uh, at the burning bush, Jesus is saying that even the scriptures that the Sadducees have, they're not reading. They're not reading. They're not understanding. He says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these great patriarchs who have been dead for centuries, and yet according to God's reality, they are alive. So even in the first five books of the Bible, though resurrection might not be explicitly mentioned, God's activity with his people is always an attempt to give power over death. Death is introduced in the third chapter of the Bible as the consequence for the curse of sin. God said, if you eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. They eat 
and they died. And so death is the consequence for disobedience. But death is not the end. God has a plan. God always has a future and life in mind for his people. And so in Genesis 3.15, God promises the day when a savior would come, a child of the woman would be born, who would crush the head of the serpent, who led the, the, the humans into temptation and into sin. And so the rest of the Bible from chapter three of Genesis is a story about how humanity has been waiting for the promised redeemer. And then you turn the page from Genesis chapter three to Genesis chapter four, and the woman has a child. Is this the seed of the woman? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? Is this the one that would crush the head of the serpent? She has a child. She names him Cain. Cain was not the savior. Cain only perpetuated death by killing his brother Abel. But in the same chapter, she has another child, a child named Seth. But Seth was not the savior. Seth also died. But before Seth died, he has a child. And that child had a child and then he died who had a child and then he died and then had a child and then he died and then he died and then he died and then he died. And Genesis five, there's this long genealogy and genealogies might be boring, but they are so important. Genesis chapter five records a genealogy and the beating drum through that genealogy is, and then he died and then he died and then he died and then he died. Everybody dies, but then there's a man in that genealogy named Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Enoch didn't die. It says Enoch walked with God and then he was no more for God took him. And what that means is probably for another sermon. But what it means for us is that there is a way to not die to walk with God. If you walk with God, you don't die. That's chapter five. You turn the page to chapter six. Somebody else walks with God. The world is full of sin and violence and evil and God grieves over humanity. And so he's going to cleanse the world with a flood. But Noah walked with God. You know from the context that he walks with God. Something bad's going to happen, but you know who's not going to die? Noah's not going to die. And Noah doesn't die. He does eventually, but but not right away. God rescues him from the flood. And so the entire Bible from the very beginning is a story about how God is giving his people power over death. That death has invaded his world and God will not have it. God will not be defeated. Death will be overcome. See, the resurrection of the dead is not wishful thinking to help us get through another day. The resurrection of the dead is ensuring that God will get his way. God will have his people. God will receive what he desires. God wants to walk with you and wants to invite you to live in his presence alive forever. He is the God of the living. And if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as savior, as the child of the woman, the promised child who would crush the head of the serpent, then you have already been delivered from the pain and the consequences of death. Even though you may die, yet you will be raised to new life. Not only at the end of time, 
but today. You can be raised to new life today. Faith in Jesus is the power for resurrection, not only for the future, but it's the power for new life today. Because what we believe about the future changes the way we live today. Every morning I wake up and I check the weather because the weather, what I believe about the temperature in the afternoon will affect the clothes I put on in the morning. Many of you wake up and you check the surf because what the surf is going to be like in the afternoon will determine whether or not you go to work or to school that day. You make decisions based on what you believe about the future. And so what we believe about eternity will influence how we live every single day. Jesus says the Sadducees are mistaken because they assume that the resurrection means being raised up into a world and into an existence just like the one that we live in today. But that's not the case. Jesus says, you're wrong. You don't get what's going to happen in the future. Jesus says that on the other side of resurrection is an existence that looks more like angels than human beings. He doesn't say that we will become angels, but he says we are like angels, that we are not, we do not marry, nor are we given in marriage. This is every newlywed couple's least favorite verse in the entire Bible. What do you mean we're not going to be married in heaven? right? But listen, this passage, it's not about marriage. The Sadducees are using a concept regarding marriage to come at Jesus. And so Jesus addresses it. But if we get hung up on marriage, the question, if we get hung up on the the marriage question too long, we actually miss what Jesus is saying. In the resurrection, we will be like the angels. Our physical being will become something very different than it is today. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And this gives future assurance. It has not only future assurance, present day implications. Because in the next verse, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. Because of what you know is going to happen in the future, you can stand firm today, unshaken by the fears of the world or the hostility of death, not because of a crutch, But because of the cross, Jesus, the Messiah, embraced the hostility of death in our place. He gave up his life to secure our eternity. He has given us hope in the resurrection, not by merely saying so, but by going before us and accomplishing it on our behalf. If all we had were words, then this is pointless. But Jesus himself has raised from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. The promise of resurrection is not just something that Jesus talked about. He guaranteed it when he himself rose from the dead on the third day. And the resurrection is not just another myth 
being told in, in, in circles throughout the world to make us feel better. It is a historical fact. 19th century Harvard law professor Simon Greenleaf, he helped develop the, the method used by courts to examine written testimony in the court of law. He once applied these same methods used in the court of law today to the gospels. By treating the gospels as written testimony, he was able to discern the credibility and accuracy of the eyewitnesses in scripture. And his conclusion is amazing. He said, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. There is going to be so many things that we experience in life that the enemy wants to come alongside us and say, I know you believe this, but look at the world. Look at death. Look at pain. Look at hypocrisy in the church. Look at all of these things. All of these things that you see in the world should discredit the thing that you believe in. But the resurrection is that opportunity for us to look at the world and see all of the pain and darkness and death. And when when, when we would, you know, find ourselves turning away from God, the resurrection is the thing that calls us back and says, no, because of the resurrection, because that Jesus has risen from the grave, because every other religious leader throughout the human history is in a tomb and yet Christ is alive. For this reason, I can continue to pursue faith in God. For this reason, I know that Christ loves me. For this reason, I know that I can have a future assurance. For this reason, I continue to put my faith in Christ. If Christ is still in the grave, then our hope in resurrection is worthless. But if he is alive, then we also will live because of the power of the Spirit of God that lives in those who believe. It's not just some other myth produced by people who want a, a, a fanciful future without dealing of the realities of this world. It changes everything because the Spirit of Christ who raised from the dead now lives in you who believe. He's put death to sin that resulted in our mortality and he took place, our place in death so that we could join him in resurrection life. But you don't need to wait until you die for this life. It begins the moment you believe. It empowers you to live a life that brings glory to Jesus. It empowers a legacy far greater than anyone that you can accomplish for yourself through your achievements, through your, your works, through your reputation, through your children, even having the greatest children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. The power of the resurrection in your life today accomplishes a greater legacy for you than anything that you could ever achieve on your own because it invites you into the legacy of Christ. It invites you into the legacy of the creator God of the universe who didn't just make everything, spin it into existence and then leave it alone, but who came into it to redeem it. He did not want it to die and be washed away in death and decay. He didn't want you to die and be washed away from his presence. He came to you to save you because he loves you, because you're a child of God because you, you walk in his legacy by the power of the spirit. He has given you a legacy of life. He's given you a legacy of love and a legacy of power and glory. 
If you've put your faith in Jesus, then the Spirit of God dwells in you today, not just to be happy with yourself, not just to comfort you about your eternity, but to empower you to delight in Christ today, to empower you to declare the good news of what Jesus has accomplished today, and to empower you to demonstrate the same love that led the God of the universe to sacrifice his life for us is in you and empowers you to sacrifice your life for those around you. Maybe ultimately by laying your life down for someone, but also Every day, those momentary deaths, that momentary dying to self, to saying no to your selfishness, to lay your life down, to pursue something good and beautiful in the life of somebody else. It demonstrates the beautiful power and the love of Christ Jesus in this world. If you put your faith in Jesus, you not only have life in the future, you have life now that you've never experienced before. If you trust in Jesus, you will experience nothing short than the power of the resurrection in your life today. That is what we have received. That is what we hope for. That is what we tell the world about, not to look to our example or our legacy, but the work of Christ and his legacy in us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so thankful for the work that you've accomplished. We're so thankful that you have given us the opportunity not just to escape death, but to have life in you. God, the most beautiful thing about eternal life is that you're there. God, if we had the opportunity to go to to heaven, have eternal consciousness somewhere, but you're not there, that's hell. I don't want to be there. I don't want to live out our, our days as some mechanical consciousness. God, we want to be with you, alive, in your glory, in your presence. God, empower us to walk with you by the power of your resurrection. Empower us to live a life that glorifies you by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. God, if there's, there, if there's people here who, who, who do not yet know you, let's pray they'd encounter your love today. The love that you empower your people with. Lord, the love, that same love that led you to the cross because you love them and you want them to live and not die. Thank you that you are the God of the living. God, we pray that we would live in light of this, Lord, to delight in you, to declare the good news, to demonstrate your love to the world. So empower us with your spirit even now as we worship, as we delight in you, as we receive from you. Lord, empower our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.